0: Sachs. I'm Editor in Chief of Open Form Infectious Diseases. And a reminder, that's OFID, not OFID. And welcome to the OFID Podcast. Today I have with me Drs. Michael and Stephen Threlkeld, two ID doctors who work together in the Threlkeld Clinic in Memphis, Tennessee. I decided to invite them to be on the podcast since, first, we haven't heard yet from anyone in private practice based ID, which is what they do. And second, they may be the only pair of siblings in joint ID practice in the United States, if not the world, though I confess I haven't done a comprehensive search to confirm whether my impression is actually true or not. So Mike and Steve, welcome.
1: Thank you, Paul, great to be with you. Thanks, Paul.
0: So start us off by telling us a little bit about yourselves, like where you're from, when did you realize you wanted to be a doctor generally, and then eventually why an ID specialist in particular?
2: I guess I'll start out first, this is Mike, uh, since I'm the oldest and chronologically
1: I started doing this first. People used to think he was my dad before I started to color <laughs> my hair gray uh, to so people would listen to me actually. We come from a family of physicians.
2: We're, we're both from here in Memphis and our dad, uncle, grandfather, and my father's generation of cousins were all physicians. And I'm six years older than Steve. I was sort of like an only <laughs> child for a while there. so. For me, it was always what I was going to do, you know, since I was old enough for people to ask me, what are you going to be when you grow up? I was like, well, I'm going to be a doctor. What do you mean? (laughs) Uh, I'll share one anecdote that my parents told me, but I honestly have no recollection of this at all. When I was five, a patient called my dad's home back in the days when you could actually look up your doctor's phone number in the phone book and call them at home on the weekend, and I happened to answer the phone. My dad wasn't there, and he said, oh, this is Mr. So-and-so, and... I've had a bad injury, and I need to speak to Dr. Frelkel right away. I said, well, my dad is not here right now, but I'm Dr. Mike, and maybe I could help you. So uh, I guess it says something about the patient. He was upset enough to where he was going to tell his medical problems to a five-year-old. But he proceeded to tell me that he'd sprained his ankle when he was out working in his backyard. And I said, well, probably you need to get off of it, prop it up, and put some ice on it. And I'll have my dad call you when he gets back in. So... My dad called him later and he said, yeah, whoever that kid was, he told me I needed to prop it up and put some ice on it and get off of it for a while. My dad said, well, that's pretty good advice from a five-year-old.
0: That's excellent. You didn't really have a choice. You had to become a doctor.
2: Pretty much, although there was never any pressure from our dad to do that whatsoever, but it just was kind of always what I was going to do. Being an ID was a more difficult choice for me, and in fact, initially I wanted to do hematology. I did some rotations in bone marrow transplant uh, when I was a resident and quickly discovered that it was the things that were killing off my patients that I found more interesting than the reason they were getting their transplant in the first place. So I started thinking about ID, probably didn't hurt that my wife was a microbiologist by training and she thought that sounded much more interesting <laughs> than some of the other specialties that I was talking about. Uh, so I think... That really is what decided ID for me.
0: And Steve, how about you?
1: Somewhat similar, although we took different paths. I likewise influenced by our dad. You know, we would go on house calls with him, and he had a kind of special talent. I think of being able to adapt to what the patient needed. He could be a jokester. He could be serious, somber. That was very inspiring to me. In retrospect, Hmm. I was fortunate enough to, in terms of ID. When I uh, was in college, my fourth year, I did half my academic load at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital here Mm -hmm. in Memphis on uh, avian influenza, sort of pandemic research with a guy named Rob Webster, who's, you know, a big league scientist in that area. And that experience in science was just terrific. It furthered my desire to go into microbiology and infectious disease-related things.
0: Well, both of you trained in academic medical centers that are unanimously considered very prestigious, very high powered. There' are as much research institutions as clinical ones for better or for worse. but you elected to go into clinical private practice ID in your hometown. So can you explain what prompted your
2: decisions? This is Mike. I don't see any discrepancy between the two at all. I think one might argue that training at a high-powered place and being getting a well-rounded, thorough, background may, in fact, be more important for a clinician than it is for someone who's going to spend their time in a research laboratory, where perhaps it's most important that they work with someone who's an expert in the specific field that they're going to go into. For me, I made that decision because I enjoy taking care of patients, and I did some laboratory research when I was in training, but I found that I missed seeing patients, and that's
1: really what I wanted to do. So for me, there's no discrepancy between the two. This is Steve again. Similarly, I I love taking care of patients. I was fortunate enough to have a great laboratory experience and had fun in fellowship as well with Bruce Walker and had a great time of it. But in the end, my passion was really taking care of patients. And then I considered doing academic clinical work uh, as opposed to practice. In academic medicine, there is a lot of this sort of syndrome of you never quite get there. I found myself dealing with a grant, a chapter to write, a talk to do, and my time at home was spent so much working on short-term to mid-term projects that I felt like I was never present at home. Mm. I think it was easier her and maybe me to have the illusion that I was off saving a very small, tiny corner of my universe with a patient than it was. Some of those other issues, though I loved some of those things, certainly. In the end, I just have more fun taking care of the patients. I will say that that the practice we're in is different from a lot of smaller community practices. One of the hospitals we work in was for decades the largest private hospital in the world. I think it was 2,077 beds in the heyday of large hospitals. So, you know, we do stem cell transplants, I do full-time heart transplant work, ECMO team, and uh, a lot of different things that probably are not going to be the average community kinds of practice. But all those things contributed to that in the clinical world.
0: So you guys obviously have a very high volume of clinical practice, and you've now seen clinical practice where you do it in Memphis and in both your private practice, not in the hospital and your consultative work in the hospital. How would you outline some of the main differences between being in private practice and what you saw when you were at the academic medical centers?
2: There's a distinction between people who do primarily laboratory research and people that are primarily clinicians, whether they're in academics or in private practice. And I suspect that we have a lot more in common with the academic clinician than the bench researcher.
0: I can guarantee that's true. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that very similar. I think the main difference in what we do and what they do is partly one of volume, and that is we see considerably more patients probably in a day and certainly from month to month in that we're doing this pretty much all the time. Yes. And there's some adaptation that's required when you start doing that, certain efficiencies and ways of thinking and looking at things in managing patients that are different than if you're just on service once a month and seeing a relatively small number of patients in the
1: clinic. And I think that's true. We're essentially, as one might put it, on service you know, all the time. Yeah. It is, I think, a large amount of volume difference. Today I had a, a clinic before our interview, and I had two cases of disseminated blastomycosis, one of disseminated histoplasmosis, and one of idiopathic low CD4 count with cryptococcus. Wow. Memphis is interesting in that it's not at the corner of happy and healthy, as the commercial uh, says it's <laughs> a lot of chronic disease here, and it also is at the intersection of a number of geographically limited diseases. We're in the central area of histoplasma, blastomyces, rocky by fever, lycia, uh, and though we thankfully miss Lyme disease, uh, unlike you. We're in the center also of the brown recluse spider belt. So when wow. somebody comes with their staff, staphylococcal abscesses telling us they have a spider bite, we actually have to consider that possibility on occasion. <laughs> I, <laughs> so. un-
0: unlike in New England, where the spider bite is a mass illusion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but one thing that's interesting about you're saying you're on service all the time, I'm sure you're aware of this, but there are many academic ID doctors who, when they go on service, put their out-of-office message on their email. If you did that, it would never be on, right? Yeah,
1: that might be one of the disadvantages of practice, (laughs) yes. we, We do have to deal with that as an overlay to what we do clinically, for sure.
0: So if you could teach the people who are in academic practice something from your experiences, something we could learn from you, what would some of those things be? And then vice versa, I mean, can you think of things that you miss about practicing at Hopkins and at MGH, which is where you were, respectively?
1: This is Steve. I'll start on that one. I think there are several things about it. I mean, in practice, you you have to stay current, obviously, and it's easier to do that in the academic setting because you're constantly around people who are small area subject matter experts and there are more conferences to go to. You have to take more of an effort to do that. I can pick up the phone and call you if I have a uh, significant HIV problem and I will tell a funny story you won't remember this, but last September you drew the short straw of sitting next to me at a dinner, yeah. and I asked you a complicated spin-off prep question about a couple that I was taking care of, and I greatly apologized for bothering you at the dinner to ask this question. And you ever so kindly but slightly sternly uh, cautioned me and said, no, "Listen, don't apologize for asking me an ID question. I love this stuff. I like to talk <laughs> about it all the time." I thought that was terrific. So it's easier in that regard. In terms of of advice to academicians from my past experience, it's key to always remember to focus on the patient. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. when you're on service for a month or two out of the year, you can sort of lose track of the individual patients and their individual needs. It's easier for me to connect with a patient in five minutes when I'm on a first name basis with them anyway than Mm -hmm. it is to meet them once a year or maybe never before. And even in in private practice with the advent of the hospitalist phenomenon, we the specialists become the doctor. We're who they see from admission to admission. Mm -hmm. It's easier for us in that regard. And sitting down and getting the rapport with the patient is something that is unfortunately necessarily being missed sometimes. It's not anybody's individual fault. The system leads to that.
0: Yeah, very well put.
1: In that regard, I've noticed that with
2: hospitalist programs now, we will find that if they may rotate around on a weekly basis. A critically ill long-term patient may have five different doctors, and many times I'm the only one that's seeing them the whole way through. So the person picking up the fifth week will come and say, well, what was going on with that <laughs> patient you know, three weeks ago?
0: Well, I think that's one of the reasons why ID consultations lead to better outcomes is because often we have that longitudinal experience with these complex patients. We know the history better than anyone, but in particular in your case where you're not rotating off service yourself. So if you look back at your ID training and think of the way ID fellows are trained today, is there anything that you would advise we change about the way we're training ID fellows to prepare them for either private practice or to be more uh, effective clinicians?
2: Many of the things I learned in my general fellowship training apply directly to what I do now. ID is one of the more academic specialties, if you will, and many of the things I saw then taking care of critically ill patients in an ICU or transplant patients or leukemia patients, that all applies directly to what I do on a daily basis. I will say though that my final year of my fellowship, I took a moonlighting job with one of the private practitioners in ID in our community. And I actually found that to be an incredibly valuable experience just because I had to ratchet up my game of volume of patients that I would see on a weekend on call compared to what I did when I was a fellow. And I saw a lot of things. I was actually bringing cases to our unknown case conference to stump people that were sometimes as interesting or more so than what was presented in the conference. And it also gave me a big advantage when I first started in practice, I knew how to interact with other physicians, which is slightly different when the person doesn't have to call you. They can call somebody else if they don't Mm -hmm. like you. You Mm -hmm. have to learn how to interact with people. And those were skills that were very valuable. So I think if someone is interested in primarily practice, it would be very valuable to have some rotations with community physicians to learn that aspect Mm -hmm. of the trade, if you will, before you're Mm -hmm. thrown out there on your own.
0: Excellent.
1: For me, you know I think it also has to do with the people that I worked with. I was lucky, and when we train residents and fellows, we have to remember that more important than what we teach them in terms of the facts, we teach them how to approach problems and the styles of doing that. But I remember in residency, there's a guy named Pete Pappas, I don't know if you know Pete he's at yeah. UAB and runs NIH Mycology Study group sure. and he was in practice for a number of years in North Carolina before coming back to uAB and going into academics, and so I rounded with him on the ID service as a resident, and he was a terrific talent at just rolling up his sleeves and getting the job done. We would round on a chancroid case, and he would diagnose it and lecture about it and do the swab himself, and then we would go see a candidate endophthalmitis, and he just seemed to do it with an efficiency and effortlessness as if he had a a one hand tied behind his back, Mm -hmm. and then in fellowship, I was fortunate enough in the clinic, and this is kind of what I would say in terms of the advice to handling is A a mutual friend of ours, Nestle Bashkos, was my clinic preceptor, my clinical year in fellowship. And as you know, she's a decorated clinician and a dear friend to this day. she was just terrific with patients and was excited about seeing outpatient cases and, and mm-hmm. the patients that came in. And I think sometimes I see that fellows now are not getting quite the variety of outpatient training.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: With HIV becoming, I want to call it routine, but certainly it is not as complicated and as right. intellectually challenging as it used to be in terms of the various things that people present with, we've had a couple of fellows that came to us and said, look, I'm finishing a fellowship somewhere and I've never seen a case of mycobacterium avium pneumonia. Can I do a month with you to see some of these things. And so I think there's a challenge because a lot of ID people in practice just don't do outpatient at all.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: There is a tremendous need for that in many communities and cities, making sure that our fellows are training effectively in the outpatient venue. Sometimes it's not as exciting to them, I think, when they're in training, maybe.
0: Yeah, both excellent points. I do want to underscore that one of the drivers behind outpatient ID not being that common is that it's so poorly remunerated. And, you know, I remember someone once said to me, if you want to make a living as an ID doctor, you really should do nothing but inpatient consults. Okay, my next question is kind of a tricky one. And uh, it goes like this. I mean, you both are from and you work in a state that skewed very far red in the last presidential election. And you work in a specialty that is Strongly affiliated with the blue color. So how has it been for you in that situation?
1: (laughs) Well, that is tricky, isn't it? I think a couple of things. One, our city that we live in, Memphis, we've said is not unique, but different in a lot of ways. Memphis doesn't have much state identity, and, and Tennessee is a complicated state in its politics in different regions. Memphis is in the extreme southwest corner of Tennessee, and as such, it's sort of the capital of western Tennessee, eastern Arkansas, and north Mississippi. So there's not a lot of state identity here. But I would say this, in terms of politics, having lived in Alabama for eight years, I learned very quickly that you immediately lost... 50% of your patient's confidence if you took sides in the Alabama-Auburn you know, <laughs> issue. And forget Democrat, Republican. That is actual bloodshed stuff. Mm. So you have to be careful about that. I sort of try to avoid that with patients per se. I will say this about Memphis, though, too. It is consistently ranked number one or number two every year in the United States per capita uh, donations of time to charities and money to charities. So it's viewed the most philanthropic city uh, in America. And I think that's in complete alignment with sort of the ideals of ID. I mean, we're inclusive. We help the person in front of us no matter what their situation is. And I'm proud of that fact.
0: That's terrific, thanks. Okay, so now last question from me is getting back to the introduction which is that you two may be the only sibling pair in clinical id practice together i'm aware of you know glenn and scott hammer and the Steigbeagles, but they're not practicing together so how does being two doctors in the same practice influence the way that you practice and how do the non threlkelds in your group manage <laughs>
2: well i'll start off with an anecdote a few years back our mother had a myocardial infarction and it was a very small one and she's fine and she's still doing well to this day but uh, she came to the hospital where i was practicing and they called me down and my mother was there with chest pain and i came down to see her and cleared that she was having an mi and they were going to whisk her off to the cath lab and the charge nurse there in the emergency room who knew me fairly well but didn't know steve because he hadn't really been going to that hospital took me aside, and she goes, Dr. Threlkeld, I know you work long hours, and you've got a lot of patients you got to see today, but you need to get on the phone and call your partner and tell them that you need some time off to be with your mother.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I said, well, that would work for most people, but probably won't work very well in my particular circumstance.
1: Oh,
0: I hope she did okay.
1: Yeah, she did fine. And I hate to tell you, that was 20 years ago, not a few years ago. <laughs> yes it was. <laughs> Another kind of funny anecdote, one of our longtime partner of 17 years or so, Amon Omer, who's a terrific clinician and truly one of the family. And that was part of my pitch to have him join us. He was at UAB and I anticipated the complaint. I said, now, listen, you're probably going to be worried about joining two brothers in practice. I want you to know that mom has agreed to adopt you. <laughs> and sure enough, when he moved here, the first person at their house was after the moving truck was my mom, joking, saying she had the papers and to sort of help out and so forth. But I would say that having a sibling in practice, and essentially we call on our third brother, we do have the opportunity to communicate probably more than most people, and mm-hmm. that wards off all manner of potential dissatisfactions in practice. Mm-hmm. My first clinic month during fellowship, I realized the comedy of having a brother in ID. Another one of our mutual friends, Howard Heller, was my first inpatient attending, and he was asking me about my family, and I told him about my uh, brother, and he he got this look on his face that was almost envious, and he said, "So did you guys just sit around at dinner at night growing up talking about ID cases?" And and uh, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, we kind of did." And uh, a lot of the problems I think with people in practice is to some degree isolationism. Yeah. You see a great case of ID stuff, and you turn to the urologist next to you and say, "This is great," and and they like, yeah super. And so uh, we we talk to each other eight ten more times a day. Not only just to share cool stuff, but also it's fun to have an extra pair of eyes on things, and I think it's very fun that way.
0: Thank you very much for that perspective. Very refreshing. And I just want to summarize by saying that I've been joined today by Steve and Mike Threlkeld of the Threlkeld Clinic in Memphis, Tennessee, and they've been talking about their experience in a very busy and it sounds like very successful private practice.